Welcome to the Springer Math Podcast. In this month's podcast, our guest is Trachette L. Jackson, who is a full professor of mathematics at the University of Michigan. She is an award-winning teacher and scholar whose research in mathematical oncology has received international attention and several awards, including the Alfred P. Sloan Research Award and the James S. McDonald 21st Century Scientist Award. Honoring her service as a role model for mathematical scientists and students from underrepresented minority groups, she was the first woman to receive the Blackwell Tapia Prize. She will be hosted by Lynn Brandon, Executive Editor for Mathematics. Hi, Trachette. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks so much for joining me on our math podcast. It is my pleasure, yeah. Good. So let's talk a little bit about your research in the interdisciplinary field of mathematical oncology. Can you explain what particular area you were focused on? Yeah, so before I get into my uh, particular area, I think it's interesting that if you really look back in the literature, you'll find that mathematics and computation and approaches that combine the two have been applied to just about every aspect of tumor growth. You know, uh, looking at studies of mutation acquisition to tumor progression and metastasis uh, to treatment response. So um, lots of people have been interested in doing um this kind of work and looking at different areas of the whole problem of tumor growth. My group in particular, for over two decades now, we've been involved with developing data-driven mathematical models of cancer, and our particular focus has been addressing uh, critical challenges associated with targeted molecular therapeutics and including determining which new drugs and combinations of drugs could be the best candidates for clinical trials. That's kind of what we've been focusing on for a long time now. And um, something that's a little bit different about our models is that we are we take a very mechanistic approach and we connect the molecular uh, events associated with tumor growth to temporal changes in how cells divide and move and live longer. And we don't just look at the cancer cells themselves. We look at multiple cell types that live and um, have important roles in the tumor microenvironment. And we try to link all of the these dynamics to the macroscopic data that we get, which is typically like tumor growth rates or therapeutic outcome, tumor response to therapy, that kind of thing. So that's that's kind of our niche in the whole field. Okay. So applying mathematical models not only to tumor growth, but also to optimization of targeted drug therapy. That's right. Great. So what advancements have there been in the targeted cancer therapy GTO mathematical models? I'd like to maybe share um, a couple of examples, maybe two examples of the way our work has led to, uh, to advancements. The first one comes with the application of drugs that are looking to block the tumor from initiating and sustaining uh, blood supply. And that that, um, mechanism is called angiogenesis. And the initiation of angiogenesis or blood vessel formation from the existing vasculature really is a critical bifurcation point in tumor progression. And so 
clinical researchers have, have been looking at all kinds of factors that kind of stimulate blood vessel cells to, to sort of grow and, and, and end up forming vessels that feed tumors. Um, but one particular uh, vascular endothelial growth factor, VEGF, is the, well, is the most well-studied. And so we, uh, what we did, and uh, one example that shows sort of the evidence of the impact of our mathematical and computational efforts is um, that our multi-scale mathematical model of the VEGF signaling pathway actually suggested that a metronomic dosing schedule, and that just means low dose, high frequency. Um, so this metronomic dosing schedule of um, using a small molecule inhibitor of downstream um, signaling targets would provide optimal efficacy when you're looking at these anti-angiogenic therapies. And so these model-based predictions were actually validated in a series of preclinical experimental studies, and, and that led to uh, the actual application of this strategy in a clinical study. So that's, that's one example of how we could use a mathematical model to predict how best to deliver a particular type of therapy that actually went on uh, to the following stages of preclinical and clinical study. Um, and the second example is a more recent project. Um, we were interested in treatments that target cancer stem cells. Now, these are cells that function as key drivers of tumor initiation, um, metastasis, therapeutic evasion, and a recurrence in a wide variety of cancers. So when you think about it, they uh, really are an appealing conceptual target that you might want to consider uh, finding a drug for, but not many of these CSC-directed uh, cancer therapies actually exist right now. Um, and so people, uh, re clinical researchers, were looking at things that could sort of target uh, cancer stem cell function and, and kind of stop these, these, uh, these potent drivers of uh, cancer pro uh, progression. So in this case, what we did was create and validate a different kind of multi-scale model to investigate the impact of the crosstalk between the tumor cells and the blood vessel cells that secrete this uh, IL-6 target um, on uh, tumor growth and on cancer stem cell fraction. So then we predicted and analyzed the response of, of tumors to the stem cell targeted therapy alone and in combination with traditional chemotherapy. Um, so the model was experimentally validated, and then once it was validated, we could use it to look for better dose scheduling options for these two drugs when given together. Now, um, there are some traditional ways of giving drugs in combination, and that typically involves co-treating, um, and it turned out that uh, these traditional schedules of co-treatment or even pre-treating or post-treating weekly with these drugs uh, were actually antagonistic. So the model predicted that that was not the best way to give these drugs. So we expanded the way we want uh, the way um, the ways in which you could deliver these drugs, and found via the the model simulations that repeated cycles of pretreatment with the targeted therapy first, followed by chemotherapy a week later, was what what um, led to the synergistic interactions and responses uh, with the combination. So it was actually um, kind of spacing out the doses in a particular way would lead to the best reduction in tumor growth 
and reduction in uh, the cancer stem cell fraction. And so that's another uh, example of how our modeling approaches are leading to better uh, ways of delivering these kinds of drugs, either by themselves or in combination with traditional therapies. God, it's so remarkable that mathematical modeling can have such a positive bearing on cancer treatment. Yeah. It must be a very rewarding research field to be in. What do you enjoy most about it? Oh, I enjoy uh, a lot of things about it. Um, I guess, you know, I'm a really big fan of team-based science. So to me, one of the most enjoyable aspects is getting to work with medical oncologists and to get to see science from a different perspective in my interactions with them and their labs and um, seeing um, the details of how their data is generated and um, and all of those facets that, that go into the numbers that they give me to, to really get the behind the scenes look at that. And just to just, you know, talking and interacting with these kind of medical scientists is one of the, the big things I enjoy. Um, I also really love incorporating students at all levels into the type of research that I do. I like exciting students from young ages about the the opportunities opportunities there are um, to combine math with biology or biomedical sciences. So I even have high school students working with me on up to undergraduates, graduate students and postdocs. And I love the interactions and kind of the, the energy that I get from having students involved with what I do. And as you mentioned, it's just really, really rewarding to be able to develop a mathematical model or computational approach that could someday lead to better therapeutic options for people with cancer. It's, it's a rewarding uh, feeling and uh, field to work in. Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine. If we can go back to your early career in academia, you studied for your PhD under James D. Murray, who was considered by many to be the father of mathematical biology. How did that come about? So that's uh, it's a fun story for me to tell, um, to look back on that. Um, so I was an undergraduate studying uh, very abstract or pure mathematics for a long time as an undergraduate until later in my undergraduate years. And um, I was actually walking through our mathematics department and saw flyers for a talk by uh, Jim Murray, and his talk was titled, How the Leopard Got Its Spots. And I just didn't understand. I thought maybe that was a mistake. Why was this flyer in the math department? I didn't see, I didn't understand how math had anything to do with that. And so actually, I went to his talk, and it was the first uh, seminar I'd ever gone to as an undergraduate. I was just so intrigued as to why this was being um, presented in the math department. And I left that seminar not understanding very much at all about the mathematics he talked about, but I understood then and there for the first time that math could do more than I ever knew was possible. Math could have something to say about developmental biology and um, medicine. And I just saw all of this potential in math that I'd never known existed um, in terms of real world applications in the, in the fields of biology and biomedicine. And so I knew after, after that eye-opening experience, I actually call it one of my scientific awakenings. Um, I owe it to him. 
And I knew right then and there what I wanted to do when I went on to graduate school. And I ended up applying uh, to the University of Washington, where he uh, where he uh, was a professor. And he actually took me on as a student, which to my surprise, <laughs> um, yeah. given that my, my background wasn't really... I, I didn't know very much about math biology at that point, but I just knew that I wanted to study it. And he was a wonderful and patient mentor and advisor. Mm, great. It's a really good story. Mm. How did the leopard get its spots then? Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, it's so controversial. <laughs> so he, uh, he was um, talking about um, diffusion-driven instability and how that could lead to a pre-pattern, a pre-patterning that led to, um, you know, um, chemicals uh, forming shapes in, in, in uh, early ingestation in animals. And um, there's this one uh, theory, reaction diffusion theory, that could predict these kinds of stripes and spots and all kinds of shapes and patterns that we see in nature. And the mathematical theory definitely does predict all of this, whether biologically that's the real mechanism is still a little controversial, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Okay. So um, aside from your own research and being a wife and a mum to two boys who are fine young men now, mm -hmm. um, you managed to find time to found and direct the applied and interdisciplinary mathematics bridge to the PhD program at the University of Michigan. Can you tell us a bit about that program? I would love to. This program is really near and dear to my heart. Um, the Marjorie Lee Brown Scholars Program, it's called, is a course-based master's degree program with a research component. And we designed it to prepare students for continuing on towards the PhD. So instead of viewing master's um, degrees as terminal, we kind of reimagined them as a bridge um, that could actually lead you into doctoral studies. Um, and what we do is provide two years of fully funded, protected time for students to gain foundational math skills, explore research options, and they can do all of this without those traditional pressures of qualifying exams or financial stresses and burdens. And we hope that giving them this time will help them uh, be really, really ready to succeed in, in PhD programs. Um, another thing that we do in this program uh, that we're able to do at the University of Michigan in particular is to connect these students with a master's level community um, within and across similar bridge to the PhD programs. We started out with three of these programs and we now have seven. And so we can connect our students to, to other uh, cohorts of students doing the same thing in different fields. And so we've formed this kind of community around um, this concept, which I think is really nice for, for, for these students. Um, and I, I think I said this program is near and dear to my heart. And I think one of the reasons is I, uh, you know, programs like this have the potential to really enhance the diversity of the field of mathematics, um, both locally and globally. So when I say local, I mean, you know, we can enhance the diversity of our own department um, by recruiting um, diverse students to come into this program who may not have thought they were ready for a PhD and can use this program to, to, to work their way towards being ready. 
Um, and even if some of these students enter PhD programs elsewhere and don't stay with us, we keep um, in contact with them, remain uh, strong relationships with them, and, and hopefully we may be able to c- recruit them back to Michigan later as a postdoc or as an early career uh, faculty member. So locally at our own, in our own department, we may be able to enhance diversity. Actually, we have been able to enhance diversity. Um, But then more globally, I think programs like this have the potential to be transformative. They can contribute to diversity on the national level by increasing that pool of well-trained mathematicians that can go off and hold faculty positions at, you know, our nation's top research universities. Great. And I suppose it's also helping the underrepresented minority scholars, the URM scholars. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So as a woman in STEM, or we could say as a URM scholar yourself, Mm -hmm. what hurdles did you personally face in your journey to where you are now? And how did you overcome them? Yeah, so I definitely faced some hurdles being an African-American female and being um, a mathematical biologist, I would say, uh, presented hurdles itself. So I'll talk about a couple in each of those areas. So um, early on, research-wise, remember I started this over two decades ago, so it was a real challenge to be able to convince cancer researchers that mathematics could be useful to them. The type of mathematical modeling and prediction methods that that I do could be useful. And so to overcome that, I mean, medical oncologists were knocking down the doors, um, you know, know, asking for our help, right? So I really had to learn to speak both languages and to communicate across disciplines and to really become good at selling the power and potential of mathematics to various audiences, including potential collaborators in the medical oncology fields. Um, And that took some time and some effort and um, but it definitely was worth it and has paid off. So that's that's one major hurdle I think I faced and had to figure out how to how to overcome. Uh, hurdles that I faced being an African American female um, kind of presented themselves really early on from noticing that I was the only one in my high school AP calculus class um, to being almost the only one in every math. Um, graduate level college, uh, uh, graduate level uh, math class that I took. And then entering the professoriate, and there aren't any <laughs> people who look like me in my department. Um, so that, that has been a really, really big and sort of pronounced um, hurdle uh, throughout my career. And how do you solve that? I mean, um, I guess what I did, and I guess everyone uh, deals with this a little bit differently, but what I did was I found um, sort of a network of like-minded people to interact with through um, organizations and uh, societies um, that really um, are interested in diversity. And I interact with these people and I get support and encouragement from these groups, especially, you know, during those critical transitions. I think having that kind of network really um, helped me make it through a lot of different uh, turning points throughout going from being uh, a new uh, tenure track faculty on up to being a full professor. So, yeah. Oh, great. So it's sort of support network. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great exactly. idea. Um, There have been several research articles, including a recent one in Nature, on how the current pandemic may have disproportionately affected women researchers. 
What impact has the pandemic had on your research? Yeah, so it's been it's been very interesting to to kind of continue to try to to produce this kind of science during the pandemic because my what I do is heavily um, connected to uh, experimental labs, which were shut down, and so everything was on hold. Again, we had this we have this team based science um, philosophy for for how we work, and we lost a lot of personal interactions with students. We weren't able to get data coming in, um, so things slowed down quite a bit um, due to the the COVID nineteen pandemic. And, and just, you know, not being able, there were just fewer opportunities uh, to talk science daily, to keep that, um, you know, stimulation and motivation um, to move the science forward when you knew everything was on hold. So I, I'd say the, the pandemic definitely kind of slowed things down. And I'm so happy everything has ramped back up. It was it was, it, it was starting to, to get to the point where I was craving that kind of uh, scientific stimulation um, with being uh, isolated for so long. Yeah, I think I think everyone has suffered from that isolation to That's some right. extent. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. great. Um, so I have some fun questions I'd like to ask you. Uh, what is your favorite mathematical word? <laughs> this is a funny, uh, <laughs> funny question and funny answer. Um, so my favorite mathematical word, I'd have to say is trigonometry, which definitely was not my favorite mathematical subject at all. But I love the word so much that we actually named our dog trigonometry. And we call him Trig for short. Great. That's a great name for a dog. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What are you not very good at? Uh, so I'm not very good at several things, probably. Um, but um, let's say sports, I'm definitely not very good at. I didn't even go looking for my inner athlete until I was in my 30s. And I had two young sons um, who were very athletic, very athletic. And they wanted mom to be at least a little athletic. And yeah. so I tried. <laughs> but I'm just not very good at sports the way they are. Yeah, sons will do that to you. (laughs) (laughs) What would you tell your 17-year-old self? Well, um, I guess on a slightly more serious note, I I tell my 17-year-old self something that I think it took entirely too long for me to learn. And that is being an African-American and being a female And being a mathematician is a powerful combination. It really is. And I would tell my 17-year-old self to really embrace all facets of who you are. Don't try to downplay one or the other. All all facets can come together in a powerful way. Great. And you are a powerful example to others. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to chat with you, Threshed. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you. This has been uh, both um, fun and, um, you know, I, I really enjoyed speaking with you about some of the things from my career and even some of your more fun questions were great to answer too. Good. Glad you enjoyed it too. Mm-hmm. Okay. Bye for now. Okay. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Springer Math Podcast. Look out for another episode next month. 